Welcome to the Bronze Surgery Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Lynch. For those of you that do not know me, I'm a PhD educator and nurse practitioner by training. The focus of this podcast is to span both clinical and educational fundamentals and turn everyday topics into interesting discussions that can benefit students, residents, and faculty alike. Today, I think we have an interesting topic that we don't talk too often about in general surgical circles. We are going to run through some of the basic tenets of aortic syndromes in ways clinicians can quickly and efficiently work up and manage these patients on both an elective and emergent basis. Dr. Soda is an associate professor of surgery at the Alpert Medical School of Brown University, and he's one of our cardiothoracic surgeons here at Rhode Island Hospital. He's going to be joining this discussion today with Dr. Scrimger to review aortic syndromes. Before we get going, Dr. Scrimger, can you just run through your educational pedigree for us? Sure. So I went to medical school at the University of Colorado, and then I came out to Brown to do my general surgery training with an interest of working in the cardiothoracic lab there, and then I'm headed next to UCSF for cardiac surgery training. Thank you for reviewing that. So jumping right into our topic, Dr. Scrimger, my first question to you is, can you just clarify for us some of the anatomy we're going to be primarily focused on today? Sure. So I think looking at the thoracic aorta, it's important to understand the various areas around the aortic root. This might be easiest to look at a picture. People want to Google a picture, but looking at where the sinuses valsalva are, the um, sinotubular junction, and then the mid-ascending aorta, and then where the proximal arch and the origin of the anominate start. The mid-arch being between the left common carotid and the subclavian, and then the proximal descending aorta, which begins at the isthmus, which is two centimeters distal to the left subclavian. Where's the delineation? when we talk about uh, what cardiothoracic surgery is going to operate on versus what we're going to give to general vascular surgery. I think cardiothoracic surgeons are we're comfortable dealing with anything about the diaphragm. Some Sometimes, you know, some cardiothoracic surgeons also do the abdominal portion of aneurysm repairs. But generally, if it's in the chest, uh, cardiothoracic surgical referral is reasonable, whether it's the aortic boot, ascending aorta, arch, or descending thoracic. Uh, where cardiothoracic surgeons overlap with vascular surgeons is really the descending thoracic aorta. The aortic root and ascending aorta are generally all managed with open surgical intervention. These days, there's not really a good stent option, and most arch pathology requires an open intervention. But now that uh, most descending thoracic aortic pathology is uh, taken care of with endovascular stent grafting, in some institutions, that's really the purview of vascular surgeons. In other institutions, it's a cardiac surgeon. And so here at Rhode Island Hospital, the endovascular stent grafting is done by the vascular surgical service. And so if it's isolated descending thoracic aneurysm or a, a type B dissection, vascular will generally manage that. We're always happy to weigh in because sometimes there's arch involvement and hybrid procedures are needed. And so I think a general rule of thumb, if you get a, if you have a patient, they have anything related to an aneurysm or dissection in the chest, including type Bs, it's reasonable to consult cardiac and you know vascular as well. That's a great segue into this. Laura, if you could talk to us a little bit, what do we mean when we're talking about aneurysmal disease? And Dr. Sowa just mentioned a couple of things like type A, type B. Can we clarify those terms for the audience? Sure. So thinking about an aneurysm of the aorta, it's defined as uh, 1.5 times the normal size. Um, and you can differentiate true aneurysms from false aneurysms as whether or not they penetrate through the aortic adventitia um, or if they don't penetrate through. You can also further um, categorize different types of aneurysms uh, depending on 
the cause of it, if it's a medial degeneration, if it's a loss of collagen or elastic tissue, or if it's caused by blunt trauma, aortitis, aortic infections, or congenital abnormalities. For type A versus type B dissections, uh, this is the Stanford classification. And for type A, the intimal tear is located in the ascending aorta, the arch, or the descending. But in type A, they all involve the ascending aorta, whereas type B is always the descending aorta or the arch, but the ascending aorta is not involved at all. So there's also the DeBakey classification. Yeah, so there are two classification systems, and the Stanford was the type A versus type B that I think um, is more commonly used and certainly a way that we think about sometimes even dividing um, cardiac versus vascular surgery consults here. But there's also the DeBakey classification where it's divided into type 1, type 2, and type 3. Type 1 involving the ascending, the arch, and the descending. Type 2 being confined to the ascending. And type 3 being confined to the descending, everything distal to the left subclavian. Is one more generally accepted than the other, or is it used interchangeably? I think they're both used interchangeably. I think that having only two types is maybe easier for general surgeons to think of, so we often default to the type A and type B, but I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. I would say the uh, Stanford classification system is used more commonly clinically. I'm sure in Houston, where uh, Dr. DeBakey is from, that uh, the DeBakey system is in use, but uh, the Stanford system is is generally a, an easy way to think about things for most patients, where you can say patients with a Stanford type A aortic dissection will generally require emergent surgical intervention. In most patients with an uncomplicated Stanford type B can be managed medically. And so I think making that differentiation of anything involving the ascending aorta is a Stanford type A. Anything that does not involve the ascending aorta, meaning anything that's distal to the innominate slash brachiocephalic artery is a type B, probably be managed medically is a good kind of quick and dirty rule of thumb in terms of thinking about dissections. When you talk about working up these patients who you suspect have uh, aneurysmal disease, how do you how do you start that work up? Sure. So I think the first thing is a CT scan, and sometimes patients have already gotten a CT scan for other complaints in the emergency department or elsewhere. But really, going back and getting a good um, CT that looks closely at the um, ascending aorta, so you can differentiate type A versus type B. But then, if you have this suspicion, for some patients, you need to do a catheterization, transesophageal echo. You could also get an MRA, but again, because of the timing, if it's a surgical emergency, that's often not the first step if it's someone that um, has an acute type A. Are we still doing aortography these days? No. Thinking about aneurysmal disease is one thing because it's generally outpatient in the elective setting. And as Laura mentioned, the best test for that is probably a gated CT angiogram. And the EKG gating of the study allows you to minimize motion artifact, which can sometimes give you erroneous measurements. In the inpatient setting, if you have someone, you know, in the emergency room, it's generally not just a, an aneurysm because those are generally asymptomatic, but it's a dissection. If that's the case, nobody really does aortography anymore. It's a gated CT angiography is probably the gold standard to make the diagnosis. And then, as Laura mentioned, in the unstable patient, a transesophageal echo can be used. Or in a patient who's stable with a question of a dissection where there may be some artifact, uh, sometimes uh, we can get a really quick MRI in the ER. That's really not common. Usually a CT is enough. Any size cutoffs with this, if you're going to determine whether you're going to medically manage somebody versus scheduling them for the OR? Sure. So similar to the abdominal aorta, uh, I think that we use 5.5 centimeters for the ascending aorta. And I think the exception to that is if you know that they have a collagen or elastic tissue disease, then you often intervene sooner. 
Um, you can also use diameter-based thresholds and symptoms to, for reasons of intervention. But if none of those things are present and it's a small aneurysm that isn't growing, I think the first things to think about are lifestyle modification, having strict blood pressure control, smoking cessation. But of course, if it becomes a dissection or turns into the size cutoff or becomes symptomatic, those are all important times to start looking at intervention. You mentioned blood pressure control. Are there specific guidelines or blood pressure targets you shoot for with these patients? For patients who have uh, thoracic aortic aneurysms, uh, as Laura mentioned, first thing we talk about is lifestyle restrictions in terms of avoiding, you know, high impact sports, anything where they may receive a blow to the chest, uh, optimizing blood pressure control. Generally, if you can get someone's heart rate in the 60s and blood pressure in the 120s, that's a pretty good place. Uh, we talk about things like smoking cessation, avoiding uh, heavy lifting, and there are different weight thresholds depending on the size of the aneurysm. And as she said, you know, with those many patients, you know, the aorta may stay a stable size, and then we just watch it for growth. And at some point, if it reaches that th- that size threshold of five to five and a half centimeters, depending on the patient, then you'd operate electively. I know there's been some observational studies on the use of statins in these patients in terms of inhibiting or slowing down the rate of expansion for these aneurysms. Are we putting all these patients with aneurysmal disease on statins these days? Like you said, though, there have really been observational studies. And so if someone doesn't have another indication for a statin, I generally don't add that to their regimen. I think the, uh, the, the best therapy is really beta blockade with the addition of an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker. A lot of this is kind of based on what's thought of as common sense and less so on hard data showing that if you're on a beta blocker, you're going to reduce your chance of aortic complication. So indications for elective surgical intervention on these patients includes? Uh, so either the size threshold or um, if they become symptomatic or if it's growing. So when we're talking about surgery electively for aneurysmal diseases, Laura mentioned uh, most patients will recommend surgery once the aneurysm gets to 5.5 centimeters in size. But if you have someone who demonstrates rapid radial growth, meaning five millimeters in a year, then we would consider operating on those patients. And then there are other patients that have bicuspid valves, connective tissue disorders, and things that Laura's mentioned where we consider operating a little earlier. And then uh, less commonly, there are uh, size criteria based on a patient's height or weight that that we put into our decision-making. But generally... If you wanted kind of a one-size-fits-all answer, 5.5 and sometimes 5. And from our discussion of aneurysmal disease and saying, you know, people can have aneurysmal disease, which is generally operated on electively, but separately, someone can have an acute aortic syndrome, which is a dissection in intramural hematoma or a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. And it's important to note that these conditions can occur in the absence of an aneurysm or in the presence of an aneurysm. They're not necessarily uh, uh, intertwined. And then we can kind of move into talking about the acute aortic syndromes. Great. So up until this point, we've been discussing thoracic aortic aneurysms and their management and workup for elective intervention. In the emergent setting, we more commonly see the acute aortic syndromes like dissections, intramural hematomas, and penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers. So Laura, can you talk to us a little bit more about these acute processes? Sure. So um, the acute aortic syndromes include a dissection, which we talked a little bit about earlier, um, if we use the Stanford classification, a type A or a type B dissection, an intramural hematoma or a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer. Just to go over specifically what an intramural hematoma is or an IMH, it's the rupture of the vasovasora within the outer third of the media, resulting in circumferential accumulation of blood, but there's no apparent intimal defect. 
So these can either occur spontaneously or be a secondary phenomenon of a rupture of an atheromatous plaque through the internal elastic lamina and formation of a penetrating ulcer, allowing extravasation of blood into the aortic wall. Versus a penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer, which is um, a localized intimal lesion burrowing into the media and leading to localized dissection in some cases. So if that occurs, then they often require urgent intervention. Dr. Soda, do you want to expand on these acute aortic syndromes for us? Yeah, I think, you know, when thinking about these acute aortic syndromes, you can either have someone present with a rupture of the aorta, which we generally don't see because most of those patients probably die uh, when it occurs, but occasionally we do see someone with a, with a rupture and they're taken to the operating room urgently. But what we more commonly see are patients who come in with aortic dissections, intramural hematomas, and ulcers. And as uh, Laura nicely kind of delineated, when we have someone with an aortic dissection, there's a disruption of the intima, and that allows blood to get between the intimal layer and the medial layer. So you essentially can see two channels on a CT scan. You can see a true lumen and a false lumen. With an intramural hematoma, you can see blood in the medial layer, but there's no disruption of the intima. So you don't see the two channels. You see more of a thickening of the aorta, generally on the greater curvature. And with the penetrating ulcer, you see this disruption of the media or the intima as well, but there's a cap and it looks like it's a localized area without a lot of extent. And so that's kind of how you, you think of things, you know, penetrating ulcers, more localized dissections and intramural hematomas take up a greater extent of the aorta. And then when you're differentiating one or the other, it's whether the intima is uh, disrupted or not. So what's the best imaging modality to obtain for these patients when they present? Do we just get a regular CT of the chest or is there a specific CT protocol order we should use to get the best information? When you have someone come in with a suspected acute aortic syndrome, you should order a dissection protocol CT. And at this institution, that entails a CTA of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis with and without IV contrast. And the non-contrast phasing is really important because it lets you determine if an intramural hematoma is present. So can we talk a little bit more about penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers, specifically their occurrence and where they're located? Penetrating aortic slash penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers are generally areas uh, where there's a disruption in the area of a calcified or cholesterol plaque. So we see these more commonly in older patients and in smokers that have other peripheral arterial disease. And sometimes they're incidental findings. You'll see a little disruption and there'll be a little cap and there may be, you know, what looks like a small pseudoaneurysm. And if it's an incidental finding, generally they're managed medically unless there's evidence of expansion. And so those patients, if you find one accidentally on a CT scan, you figure out whether they're having chest pain or back pain. And if they're not, then usually I'll just manage them medically and follow up with an interval study to make sure there's no growth. Sometimes they're symptomatic when they happen acutely. And when they're symptomatic, there's a high risk for rupture. So in those cases, if you've got someone with an ascending penetrating atherosclerotic ulcer and they're symptomatic, you'll manage them like a dissection and you'll uh, replace that segment of the aorta. And in the descending thoracic aortic position, if they're symptomatic, generally they're managed with stent grafting and covering the area of the defect. So it sounds like penetrating atherosclerotic ulcers have a tendency to progress into intramural hematomas. Is that correct? They can. You know, there's a lot of controversy about the origin of an intramural hematoma. There are a number of surgeons out there who think that there's actually a small focal dissection flap somewhere that just can't be seen on the CT scan, and that allows blood to get between the intima and media. And they think these are a variant of an acute aortic dissection, whereas other people feel as though there really is rupture of a vasovasorum and the intima is truly intact. There's just two different camps, and no one's been proven right or wrong. 
Uh, penetrating ulcers will basically uh, kill you if they rupture or if they induce uh, intramural hematoma or dissection. And so they could progress to either, but generally we see them in their isolated ulcers. And the medical management for patients with an asymptomatic penetrating arthrosclerotic ulcer includes? I think if you've got a patient with an asymptomatic penetrating ulcer, it's heart rate, blood pressure control. I think statin therapy is important in these patients because it's more of a arterial disease process and uh, then following them with serial imaging. All right, so I think we've defined some of the terms here. How about we go down the pathway for the patient who presents the ED with, with an acute dissection? Sure. So uh, depending on whether or not they have imaging, that would be the first step, especially if someone's presenting with chest pain most commonly. And once we have imaging that does look like an acute aortic dissection, uh, then differentiating type A versus type B. And if it does look like a type A, then this is a surgical emergency and needs to go to the operating room versus a type B that can be medically managed. I think it's important, you know, so when you have this patient and you're worried about a dissection, get the appropriate test. If the patient's not stable, and you have a high index of suspicion for a dissection, you know, someone comes in and your family says, oh, they've had a known five and a half centimeter sending aortic aneurysm. You can do a quick ultrasound in the ER, but uh, transesophageal echocardiography in the OR can make the diagnosis. And sometimes the safest place to be is in an operating room. And so if you have the diagnosis established, I think while in the emergency room, a few things are important. One, get the pain under control because pain results in tachycardia and hypertension and both those things are bad because even if you have a live awake talking patient in the ER, you never know when all of a sudden this dissection can rupture and they'll code on you right then and there. And if that happens, there's really not a lot you can do. So get the pain under control, get them started on immediate medical therapy, which is anti-impulse therapy, meaning you want to get their heart rate controlled and then you want to get their blood pressure controlled. And so generally, you want to start a beta blocker first because if you start an afterload reducing agent, you may induce a reflex tachycardia, which can actually be somewhat problematic. So start them on a beta blocker if they're not already bradycardic. And if they're still hypertensive, then start them on an afterload reducing agent. You can start them on sodium nitroprusside, nicardipine, whatever is uh, available. But you know, we, we never want the patients ignored. Once the decision's made to go to the OR, that interim period of time, there are still things to get done. You can still prevent, you know, worsening complications from occurring. I guess I would just add to that. I think sometimes there's a debate whether it's a type A or type B and debate whether or not cardiac or vascular needs to see the patient and really what the next step should be. And I think one of the things to think about is just starting the medical therapy either way, because whether or not it's a type A or type B, we want them on a beta blocker right away. And I think sometimes that gets pushed lower on the list when really that should be the first thing to do and then figuring out the next step. So that's something to think about in the ED. So Dr. Soda, I have more of a technical question for you with regards to the operative management of these patients. I've read that there's usually two questions that need to be answered prior to deciding on the appropriate technique for repairing an acute type A dissection. The first question is what's the size of the aortic root? And the second question is what's the condition of the aortic valve? Can you just address these two questions and discuss why it matters for planning a surgical approach for these patients? Sure. I think as uh, as Laura to uh, discuss, first you need a diagnosis. And so in anyone in whom you have a suspicion, you get the CT scan and it'll let you know if there's a dissection or an intramural hematoma there or not. And then if it is a type A for almost all patients, emergent surgical intervention is required. And so you you get to the operating room. And I think the initial questions we ask when we get to the OR are, 
One, how are we going to cannulate the patient to get them on cardiopulmonary bypass? So we have options of cannulating the groin. We have options of cannulating the axillary artery or the innominate artery. And those decisions we based we base on the extent of the dissection and where there's true and false lumen flow, because oftentimes these dissections go all the way from the aortic root down to the iliac arteries. Once we've done that, depending on how stable the patient is, we'll either cannulate and go on bypass right away or we open the chest. Uh, most of these cases will require some, uh, deep hypothermic circulatory arrest, meaning we stop all blood flow to the head and everywhere to do the distal extent of our repair. And to your question about assessing the uh, aortic root and the valve, so uh, most of the time the dissection will involve the aortic root or the sinuses of Alsalva, and these patients will oftentimes present with aortic regurgitation because the valve mechanism has been disrupted. If the valve leaflets are okay, oftentimes we can resuspend the valve and preserve it, but if the valve leaflets are non-functional or the aortic root is really large at baseline, if you have someone who has an aneurysm at the root, you know, five, five and a half centimeters, you'll want to replace that. And so generally, if someone's aortic root is less than four and a half centimeters in size, I'll probably leave that alone in the operating room during a dissection. But if it's greater than four and a half centimeters in size, I'll replace the aortic root and determine whether the valve gets replaced or repaired. It'll just be an interoperative decision. And then the distal extent of how, how far we have to go is really dependent on how large the aorta is distally, how thin the tissue is, but I'll almost always uh, circa-rest these patients and open up the arch and look and then replace what's needed there. I think there, you know, the, the general rule of thumb is, you know, you want to have a live patient at the end of the operation. And so sometimes these dissections are so extensive, you could in theory try to, you know, replace everything, the arch, the, you know, proximal descending thoracic and uh, if you have a stable patient and the tissue quality is good, then that may be the thing to do in that patient. And other patients, it's really fixing what's going to kill the patient. And so when you think of patients with aortic dissections, you know, with someone with a type A dissection, why do they die? Well, one, they can rupture and bleed to death. Two, the aortic dissection causes severe aortic regurgitation and they die from acute AI and heart failure, respiratory failure. Three, the dissection goes back into the coronary arteries and causes an acute MI. Four, they die of tamponade. Or five, they die because the dissection extends into the head or visceral vessels. And so the goal of a type A dissection repair is to basically remove those causes of death. And generally, replacing the ascending aorta will prevent the dissection from extending into a coronary. You'll hopefully have corrected the aortic regurgitation. They're not going to rupture there, so you've taken that bleeding kind of tamponade portion out of it. And so the most basic operation for an acute type A dissection is just repairing that segment of the ascending aorta. So before we close, are there any take-home points you want our residents to get out of this discussion? I think this is great. I think if, you know, this is for the general surgical residents, it's when you're thought, talking about thoracic aortic pathology, one, it's important to have an understanding of the anatomy and so understanding the aortic root encompasses the valve, the sinuses of Valsalva, up to the sinotubular junction, and then you have your ascending aorta, then that's bridged by the anominate and the subclavian for the arch, and then the descending thoracic aorta. So having that understanding of the anatomy of the aorta is important, and then understanding that aneurysmal disease is different than an acute aortic syndrome. And so we have our thresholds for when we operate on aneurysms and how we work those up, and then how to initially manage an acute aortic syndrome, which is basically, you know, 
your garden variety dissection 70 80 percent of the time so i think laura's gone over that so i think you know for someone's listening they spend 15 20 minutes kind of getting those key things is good I agree. We don't speak enough about these cardiothoracic disease processes often in the general surgical world or in our service-specific conferences. I appreciate both of your time in going over these diagnoses and management today. I think the residents are going to get a lot out of this discussion, so thank you for joining me. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. you. So thanks again to my guests, Drs. Laura Scrimger and Neil Soda, for reviewing aortic syndromes with us today. Next week, we will conclude our chief podcast discussion with Dr. Juan Pablo Zenlio, He is going to be taking us through the workup and management of both crush injury and compartment syndrome. So stay tuned for that, and I'm looking forward to having you back with us in the next episode.